Our scripture for this morning is um, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. The remnant who is not sick, or maybe it's just my family. Heidi, I don't know if that was your first time reading, but you have a very pleasant reading voice. I really, I, I could listen to that a long time. And since we're complimenting, if you're here for the first time, that was the Strasbaugh family uh, leading us today. And because you don't lead us that often, I feel like I always comment on it when you do, but it just is so, two things came to mind. It's so like earthy, just down to earth. And then beatitudinal is what came to mind since we made that a word, since we've been in the beatitudes. It's just very slow pace, the pace of Jesus. So thank you both. Thank you, Krista, for leading us in that. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Dawson. I'm one of uh, the leaders here, but I like to often say I'm one of the members here. It's my great joy to be a member of this church. And probably even more importantly, uh, my joy that I get to be a part of my father's world, that he's an adopted father to me and I'm adopted son. So if I don't know you, I'd love to change that. I'd love to have a meal uh, with you. Uh, or you can hop in. I think we have a good handful of families going through our membership track. Not too late to do that. No food there, but we can get to know each other uh, a little bit better. And I, I guess I'll do this right now. I, uh, you guys heard a name drop happen. Now, many of you are new here, so the name Meisenberg doesn't mean that much to you, but Abe and Jen and, and their family, is it just the two you guys? I didn't, oh, it's just the select the best, the best. <laughs> The best are here. So uh, I got to honor um, some people a few weeks back, and it'd be my joy to honor Abe and, and Jen today here at the beginning. Abe and Jen uh, were, were leaders here at our church for a very long time. And uh, Abe, actually, I was thinking about this this morning. I think that Abe helped me with my first ever sermon to a corporate gathering. And I was thinking about it. I'm pretty sure it was James 3, which is about taming of the tongue, which begins with not many of you should become teachers. And I, and I just today I was like, was that on purpose? Like, did he do that on purpose? But I actually remember sitting with you and opening the word of God and you helping me become a preacher. So thank you for doing that. And seven years later, it's great to honor you both, Jen, all you've given to this church family. And now you are in another part of the country doing the same, but glad to have you guys here. All, all four of you, the, the best of the Meisenbergs. All right, well, we are in uh, the sermon, the King's Speech, the Sermon on the Mount, and we just wrapped up the Beatitudes, which is, we talked about it, it's like the, the personality profile of a citizen of the kingdom of God. And we have these eight 
attributes, not to be confused with Enneagram types that you can choose which one is best, but rather this is what it looks like to be a citizen. And then these two metaphors, salt and light, uh, that are metaphors that tell us what, what we are meant to be as kingdom citizens in a, in a world. And I don't know if you've caught on to this yet, but Jesus is like one of those people that he just keeps talking about that one thing. Like he just won't shut up about one thing and it's the kingdom, the kingdom, what life is like in the kingdom. And maybe you've caught on to this, this kingdom that he keeps describing is super backwards. It's like very upside down. It's like the kingdom in Alice in Wonderland or something, or like the, the, the kingdom that my kids play that opposite game that's really frustrating to adults, but between four and eight, the opposite game. Everything in Jesus' kingdom seems to be backwards. In fact, even before we get to chapter five, the first few chapters of Matthew, the decisions that Jesus is making are very strange. He, he's coming in as a king, introducing the kingdom, and, uh, you know, as politicians do, they have their campaign speech. And his choice of where he goes is, is backwards, right? If, if we had someone today trying to make an impact, you go to Washington, D.C., or you go to Seattle if you're in, in Washington. And Jesus does not go to the capital cities. He goes to Galilee, which is like... Kent or something, or I'm sorry, or Nebraska. It's Nebraska. It's like, why did you go to Nebraska? Uh, Jesus goes to Galilee. It's not very regal of you, Jesus. And then he, he chooses these unlikely people. He like goes straight to fishermen. Like why, why fishermen? And people start bringing unlikely people to him, people that, that need a lot of help. Ill people, plagued people, mentally ill people, um, people that are demon-possessed, and Jesus accepts them. He says, these are, my, these are my people. And over the last few weeks, his sermon, his upside-down sermon, I don't know if you've caught on to uh, the fact that every week our little logo changes, but that's because one of our artists, Tori, has been drawing a logo for each beatitude. Have you noticed that? So look, so far we have eight of them. Uh, I think I have a slide with eight pictures. I hope I do. Oh, I don't? Oh, I'm really sad. I did yesterday. I must have changed the slide deck. Um, you might find it in a different slide deck, and that would be my fault, not his. So over the last few weeks, though, we had, let's see if I'll quiz you guys. This is even worse. Now I'm going to quiz you guys. No, Theodore. Do you guys remember some of the pictures? I won't quiz you guys. But uh, we had poor in spirit, right? We had merciful. We had meek. And we have these pictures of these little hands, like putting on a, a Band-Aid or this picture of um, a jar being molded back together. I'm kind of stalling for time because I'm really hoping he's going to find it, but I don't think he is going to find it. Okay, we'll put that in the, in the newsletter. So we have this upside down kingdom. All that to say, all that to say, uh, Jesus is describing this very contrarian uh, way of life. And maybe you've heard me say this metaphor before, but to me, it reminds me of when, maybe you've done this before, you've gone to a different country where they draw, draw uh, not draw, they drive on the other side of the road. Has anyone done that? I was in London a few years ago 
uh, probably six years ago, and I was actually, my friend got a Tesla, so that's probably why I was very excited to drive. It was back when not many friends had Teslas, and so he said, let's, let's try to drive. Now, in the United Kingdom, maybe a few other countries like Australia, South Africa, you drive on the left side of the road. And if you've been driving on the right side, which is the right side of the road, then as soon as you step in, it's very disorienting. Like you, before you even turn the car on, it's extremely disorienting because you have the, you're sitting on the, the right side and as soon as you like try to grab the, the blinker, it's not there. It's, it's on the other side, okay? And if it's not a Tesla, you use a stick shift, like sticks down here. That's super confusing. And so I get in the Tesla, I'm really excited. We're driving down. It wasn't, he didn't do London, but we're like rural outside of London. And as soon as I feel, I, I'm, I'm finally getting it. I'm okay, okay, so the, 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 the right hand turns the tricky one. All right, the blinkers are here. And I've, as soon as I feel like I'm getting the hang of it, suddenly there's a roundabout and I just like stop. I have like no clue which way this is about to happen. Some of you, some of you actually need to learn how to drive a roundabout in the United States as well. I'm looking at some blank stairs and you're like, I, I've, I get confused here. Uh, but I just kind of stopped and he's like, you can't stop. There's traffic behind you. Like you can't, you can't do that. Um, this way that Jesus is calling us to, this upside down kingdom, it's very contrary to our muscle memory. It's very similar to driving on the other side of the road. Now, it'd be, let's be clear. Let's get the metaphor correct. It'd be one thing if we were all deciding that, okay, Jesus' kingdom, we're all gonna drive on the other side of the road. He's gonna grab this community of people and he's gonna put us on an island and there all of us can learn to drive on the other side of the road and no one gets hurt. But that's not the way it works. He's asking us to drive on the other side of the road in this world, right? So what would happen if right now, after the gathering, we all come out here, we get on 6th Ave, and we try to go down division, like towards the water, driving on the left side of the road. What's going to happen? There's going to be some collisions. We're going to have a crash. There's going to be collisions. And a, a collision, Jesus that Jesus is anticipating is happening right here in Matthew 5. He is anticipating this collision of authority, this collision of authority. If you look at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, this is like Jesus finishes talking and then it says this, last couple of verses of, of Matthew 7. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had what? Authority and not as their scribes. Jesus knows that a collision is about to happen. Now, why is there going to be a collision of authorities? Jesus is teaching as authority. And there's these scribes that don't have it, but do the Jews, do the people, do his audience have something that's authoritative that they live by? Do they have something? Yeah, it's the scriptures. That's what we just, we just read. That's why Jesus is talking about the law and the prophets. Jesus knows that 
there's a collision bound to happen, a collision of authority. He's walking around with authority, like he, like he owns the place, and people are getting uh, confused. Jesus knows this is about to happen. Now, when, uh, when we say law and the prophets, when, when Jesus says that, that might be strange language to us, but basically that's Jesus's way of saying the Bible. That's the stuff that came beforehand, okay? So that's, that's the scripture, that's the, that's the tension that we're seeing right now. So here's the big question. Basically, it's who's, who's the boss? Jesus, is Jesus the boss? Or are we the boss? Now, if this passage seems ancient, as soon as we get to this, it suddenly doesn't seem that distant or ancient at all. This seems like a very important question for us living in Tacoma, living in the Pacific Northwest or in the Western world in the 21st century. Whose authority matters? Am I the boss? And how in the world can Jesus followers claim that this has some sort of authority? It's this 2,000 and more year old book that's really a library of many books, and we're claiming this authoritative. Charles Taylor is a sociologist. He, uh, this is kind of my paraphrase of a longer quote from him. He says, in the last 500 years, the West has moved from a culture of authority so in the last 500 years in Europe and then here, the West has moved from a culture of authority where lifestyles were rooted in three types of authority, the king, the church, and the family, to a culture of authenticity. Trust yourself. Trust your feelings, right? Trust your feelings, Luke. It's a Star Wars reference. Okay. I did Lord of the Rings last week. I won't do it this week. But I did do Star Wars. We trust our feelings. So that conflict of authority is very much a real one today. And it was a real one in Jesus's day. People are wondering, is he coming with this new kind of authority? And how does Jesus' authority relate to, to scripture? He's addressing what has to be addressed today. He's addressing back then the liberals of the day that some of them we're thinking that the Old Testament is old stuff and we can move on. And he's also addressing, as we'll see very directly, the conservatives of the day who say, it's simple enough, it's right here, black and white, I've got it, I'm in, okay? So today, it's a little bit of a shift, but it's not, we'll see by the end. We've been talking about being a kingdom people, salt and life. It feels like a shift. It feels like a shift into this theological debate or this question about the Bible, but we'll see it all ties in. It's all about God's heart. And the questions, though they might seem theological, are these two. Uh, what is Jesus's relationship to the Bible, to scriptures? And then second, what should be my relationship to the Bible? And we'll move from those into, as always, Jesus' heart issues. But what is Jesus' relationship to the Bible? And second, what should our relationship be? And if you're new here, then we need to let you know that uh, we've adopted this practice of doing some teaching. And then at the end of the teaching, at the end of preaching, we slow down and we ask the Spirit to tell us what he's been telling us. And so we actually pull a whiteboard up here and we invite uh, people to speak. And so we have these two questions that we always frame our time with, and that's what has the spirit been challenging you with? 
And what has he been comforting you with? Okay, so as we go, pay attention. I really ask, and that's actually been my, I was telling some people this morning, my, my fear is that we've been in such a great place of getting after the heart of Jesus and his church in the world. And now I feel like there's this abrupt stop, stop and I don't want us to stay up here in terms of our relationship to the Bible. I really ask that we'd continue for Jesus to shape us in type of people that we are meant to be in Tacoma. So I'm going to pray these two things. We're going to spend the second half of our time asking those two questions. How does Jesus relate to the Bible? How should we? Jesus, thank you that you are here with us today. Welcome again. I pray you'd slow our hearts down to pace with you. And in this dense paragraph, a few sentences, few sentences, you have things that you want to call us to today. You have things that you want to remind us of about your character and about your purposes for us in a world that needs to know what you are like. Do that for us today. Amen. So what is Jesus' relationship to the Bible? Might be a strange question. It's a really good question. What is Jesus' relationship to the Bible? So what is he, uh, you can keep your Bibles open. I'll have it as often as possible up on the screen. I think, now that that logo slide's not there, I have no idea what's going to happen. But uh, keep your Bible open, Matthew 5. Let's read read, uh, Jesus' opening line. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I already kind of hinted at this, but when Jesus says law or the prophets, he's talking about the Bible, okay? That's just shorthand. At at that time, they had the first three quarters of our Bible all the way up to the gospels, and they had kind of three basic genre categories for us, the law, the prophets, and, and the writings, all right? But sometimes they use shorthand and just said the law, and the prophets. The law was the Torah, and it's the first five books of the Bible that do give us the, the law, the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've heard of those, right? Um, and 603 other commandments. But more than just commandments, they give us the story and the context in which those commandments were given. So when Jesus says the law and the prophets, the law, he means the Torah, and then everything that came after, the prophets that uh, explained the law, that called people to who they were supposed to be, and even told of what was to come. So when Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, we're going to use, when I say Bible, we're, we're, I'm using that word for us. I could say scriptures, but we're, we're using our shorthand for what Jesus is referring to, and it's everything that came before him. Do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, when someone says, don't think I've come to abolish, uh, what, what does that imply? That implies that s- some people are thinking that he has come to abolish, right? That, don't think, do, do, not, do not think this. You only say that when somebody's actually, actually thinking it. Abolish is kind of a strange word for us, right? We don't use that all that much. Abolish means to disrespect or to disobey. Um, so if you know that, think about Jesus' little line. 
Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. Now, if we know that abolish means disrespect, disobey, what would you think? What's the, like, logically, the framework of that sentence? Don't think I've come to disrespect, disobey the Bible, the scriptures. What, what would you think would come? Like, you, you, think, you, you think he'd say, no, I've, I've come to obey them, right? I've come to, like, if the opposite of disobey is obey, then he should say that. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? I've come to fulfill them. Fulfill them. That's a big word for us. Fulfill. What's that mean? Doesn't, doesn't mean a ton. But if you read the first few chapters of Matthew, that word is all over the place. Matthew very intentionally places this word uh, in strategic moments. There's like basically the story of Matthew. Matthew's just saying, here's some things that happen. But every so often, he pauses and does his own little commentary and, and says something like this. And this thing I just told you about, that is to fulfill what was prophesied. Like in the very beginning, chapter, chapter 1, uh, when Jesus is born. Chapter 1, verses 22, 23, Matthew pauses in the birth narrative. And he says, now all this I just told you about took place. That what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. And then he explains, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Just a few verses later, Joseph uh, takes Mary and Jesus to Egypt in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, verse uh, 15, there's this moment again. So it says that Joseph rose, took the child, took Jesus and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And then here's Matthew again, like stepping back and saying, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So there's all these little moments throughout Matthew where very... Intentionally, Matthew says this was to fulfill. And now that part of fulfill we might get, right? Fulfilling prophecies makes sense to us. There's a prophecy and then Jesus is to fulfill it. So we get that part. But how does Jesus fulfill the law? Like how does Jesus fulfill this other part, all this, this other stuff here? How, what does it mean to fulfill the rest? And there's also a lot of crazy stuff in this first part, right? If you read it, you kind of get, you, you, you make it to like Leviticus and maybe even before that. And you're like, there's a, there's a lot of stuff here that needs to be explained. When I was in my undergrad, I had, um, so I was studying at a secular state university, but I was studying philosophy and religious studies but I was studying with a few professors, one professor particularly, his name was Dr. Dietrich. And Dr. Dietrich was, uh, he, would, he would say he's a very like confidently, no apologies, would say he's, an, he's an, not an atheist, but he's definitely an agnostic, but he's teaching religious studies. And I wrote him, Dr. Dietrich, if by 
chance you're listening to this, I am glad you are. I wrote him a letter at the end just thanking him for the way he shaped me. But he very intentionally liked to, this is in the South, and he very intentionally liked to mess with little freshmen coming in to school who had just kind of grown up hearing that the Bible is authority, is authoritative, and he just was very excited for those little 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds to come into his class and drop some bombs. Now, I was a little bit slightly older. Uh, I started college later. I'd moved from Europe. And so I got to kind of sit in the back and be like, oh, wow, this is really, this is a lot. Uh, He would do things like this. He would say, okay, it's Friday, everybody. That means you have till Monday to work on that essay. And uh, that's just not very long. It's 48 hours. Oh, he was like, stop. He'd be like, oh, wait, 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 it's not actually. Because tomorrow is Saturday. Tomorrow is Sabbath. So if any of you write, like do any work on your, on your essay, then according to Exodus 32, and he knew it by memory, he would say, I think, I, I don't know if I have this slide. Exodus 32, he'd say, according to Exodus 32, we know that on six days work may be done, but the seventh day shall be holy to you as a Sabbath of complete rest of the Lord. So anyone who does work on that day shall be put to death. And you just drop this and all the freshmen are just looking at him. Uh, or he would say, today's a football game. Today's a football game. And after the football game, you were all invited to the funeral. And all the freshmen are like, what? And he'd be like, well, you know, Deuteronomy 14.8. And the pig, the pig, their dead bodies you shall not touch or you'll be put to death. Right? The pig skin. I actually did some research. I was like, do we still use like live? No, we don't. Most of you didn't need to know that. I, I didn't know. And it was good to know that we no longer use actual pigskins for a, uh, a basketball or a football. But what's going on there? Well, there's a whole lot going on. We're going to start like real zoomed in. There's this dead pig command. This dead pig is this unclean animal. And God tells his people not to touch the unclean animal because he wants his people to be a clean people that will reflect a clean and holy God. And Jesus is going to come in and he's going to fulfill, I'm starting like with a really zoom in, he's going to fulfill this picture that people are supposed to present. He's going to be a picture of, of something that's pure, something that's holy. Or the Sabbath. Sabbath is this law. We, we've, we've taught a lot on Sabbath over the last couple years. But the Sabbath is this law that what's it supposed to do? It's supposed to help people become dependent on a God who holds everything under his control. So for 24 hours, you don't have to have your world um, in wraps. You can kind of take a break and let God be God for 24 hours. God wants his people to be a people who rest, okay? So if you, take, if you take the Bible and you say it's authoritative and like Dr. Dietrich, who actually knew a lot more than he was saying, he was just trying to be a little nasty. Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, it's difficult. Now let's zoom out, because we do this a lot. Let's zoom out and get the whole story. We have God's people to whom was given the law and the Torah we have this father of God's people, his name is Abraham. He's told that his family is going to be a blessing to all the nations, right? We have Israel who, 
Uh, they are the family of Abraham. They are brought into Egypt. They are brought out of Egypt. They are rescued by God. And they are brought to this one mountain. And on this mountain, God appears and he makes an announcement. And it's like the OG covenant. This whole time I'm like nervous. I have no idea which slides you have now. And so I'm just gonna, I'm trying to relax Sabbath around that. But we do have this one. Okay, the OG covenant. This is the, the original covenant. And what does he say? He says, now if you obey me fully, keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there's this original agreement. God tells them, I want you to keep you're part of the agreement. He gives them, like I said, 10 commandments and, 600 and other, 603 other ways in which to live. For a reason, there's supposed to be a kingdom of priests. We teach on this a lot. What does that mean? There's supposed to be this mediator, this like picture that says, when people look at you, my people, Abraham's family, they will get a picture of what God is like. Now, how does that go? doesn't go great, right? People are not a very accurate picture of what God is like. They are not very good at keeping these commandments. What happens? At this point, it would make total sense for God to walk away, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't walk away. And we're going to slow down. We're going to look at one prophet who captures what happens in this moment of the story of Israel. And that prophet's the prophet Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 31, he, he's very aware of the OG covenant. And he's going to start talking about a new covenant. We're going to walk through this a little bit slower. There's this new covenant. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. So he's like, that's just marriage language saying, I was a faithful husband. They weren't, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. We'll pause right there. Did you hear, there's something significant He's saying there's going to come a moment in this story where up till that story, it was something that they could talk about. They could tell other people, let me tell you about something that, uh, that, that you should know. And he's saying, no, there's going to come a time where now people are going to say, let me tell you about something I've experienced. Let me tell you about something that I know to be true. Because they will all know me. And who in this upside down kingdom? Who? From the least of them to the greatest. 
declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and, re- and will remember their sins no more. So there's this new covenant. Jeremiah says there's, there's coming, there's gonna come a moment where we have this new thing happening. And this one I'm pretty sure I have, it's Tori's picture of this passage. There's going to be a new covenant in which the law is not gonna be over here, something that we try to, to look at and figure out and obey, but the law is actually going to be written on our hearts. It's going to be something that Jesus does to our very heart. Look back at the very end of of, uh, Jeremiah 31. You can go back to that slide. The very end there. How is it going to happen? For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. I want you to just pause for a second. I want you to think about somebody, somebody that you were close to, whom you wronged, okay? This shouldn't be that hard in case you're not that self-aware <laughs> or you don't have good friends. Uh, um, sorry, that wasn't mean to shame you. Uh, this, should, this should not be that hard. Think of somebody that you wronged, okay? And now hopefully, maybe this hasn't happened and that, that, that's sad, but it's okay. Hopefully you have an experience where somebody that you really wronged comes back to you and is able to address what happened, but then approaches you with forgiveness, okay? If you have that person in your mind, then, then think about like your relationship with them BC, before confession, right? And then after. And if you have this experience where you've like walked through with like somebody who you really care about, somebody you're really close with, and you really wronged them, and then they're able to come back to you and and say, I want to talk about it, but I want you to know my heart's for you. Like I've forgiven you. Then just just like a physical wound in our body where a bone is broken and then mended, that, that thing that happens is something beautiful where... The artifact of the brokenness is there, but the mending has caused something stronger to happen, something more beautiful. Jeremiah, in authoritative words that he doesn't exactly know like how it's gonna play out, he's saying there's gonna come a moment where there's gonna be this new covenant where you're gonna, you're gonna get the heart of God written on your very hearts and it's gonna come on the other side of this great act of forgiveness that's gonna change the way you relate to him. It's gonna change the way, like you, you stop talking about him and you say, I, I, I know this God. So Jeremiah 31 is foretelling this great project that we could call the great renovation of the heart the great renovation of the heart. And Jesus comes in and when he, he's talking, he's, he's giving this new vision of the kingdom where he gives these beatitudes, everything is upside down and he's, he's calling people to be salt and light like we talked about last week in the world. And he's, he's, he knows 
Jesus knows that in order for people to really be salty and shiny, something significant has to happen to their hearts. Look at, let's look at Jesus's, uh, Jesus's full statement again that we're unpacking here. And notice one, one, uh, one scholar, his name is Pennington. He says, this, this paragraph is so intense and compact. It's like every sentence or maybe every word is like a spark that could go and like light a whole forest fire. Like Jesus is dropping all sorts of things. So listen to what Jesus says again. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. Do you have any other translations for that? Anybody? Tittle, yeah, which always feels weird saying that word. I don't know why. But it's saying like the smallest piece, the smallest little marking, it will not pass from the law until it's accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless, now listen to this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty big deal. Right? Right? <laughs> now, I, if you've been around for a while, we know, you know, that we, every opportunity we're together, we remind, or like remind ourselves that we're justified by Jesus' finished work alone. That that's the only way that we can be adopted into Jesus' family. And that is true. That is, that is true. But in light of Jesus' sermon, in the light of everything that he's been talking about, that's not actually what Jesus is talking about right here. He really is talking about our righteousness, which we've talked about before, we'll talk about again, that he desires for our righteousness, for the, for the righteousness of his people to go even deeper than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Who are the scribes and Pharisees? They're the professional religious people of the day. We hear Pharisees, we often think of, we get negative connotations, but they were actually kind of killing it. They were doing a great job. They knew the Bible and they were living it. But often what they would do is in an effort, this is sometimes what, what we do when we want to make sure we're, we're doing things right. We, we try to make things, everything like super black and white. They would take these 10 commandments. They would take the 603 additional ones and they, they would figure out if that wasn't enough, how to make it super, super clear to everybody whether you're following what you're supposed to or not. And so like, let's take the Sabbath, for example. So the Sabbath, there's some teaching on it that's in the Torah, but they would take it and they would, they would kind of do these little footnotes to, to it. And they created 39 different categories, not in the Bible, but this is what they really did. They, take, they, they took the Sabbath and they created 39 categories of what could be considered work. 39 different things, including like how many steps you could take, 
or like uh, how many times you could chew your food, right? They'd be counting on the Sabbath. It's like, okay, all right, we're done. Like that's Sabbath chewing. How many times, how many, how many words you could write on the Sabbath, all right? Just to make sure what? That at the end of the Sabbath, they could say, I Sabbathed, I did it. Now, like take a step back. If you are counting how many times you are chewing your food and how many words you wrote to your wife on the little like encouraging love note, are you truly Sabbathing, right? If you're counting how many times you chew your food, no. They, they tried to put some boundaries on this law to make sure that they got it right. Someone said that they tried to like cage the law and Jesus is coming here and he's like uncaging the law back out to, to, to everybody. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And there's two types of people. Those who are like, well, I'm in trouble. I'm in like real trouble. Or then there's a few of us who are like, I think I got it. Just tell me the 39 again. Like I'll, I can do this, right? But Jesus, and this is kind of, this has been a difficult sermon to prep because I, it kind of, it, it just like all flows together. Jesus is about to go into these six examples of what he's talking about. He's about to do this topical preaching on six topics. Do you see him there? They're gonna, you're gonna have headings uh, in your Bibles probably. Uh, anger is gonna be the first one. And then lust, and then divorce, and then oaths, and then retaliation or loving your enemies. And basically what Jesus is going to do is he's going to do the same little template. He's going to say, topic, you've heard it said. This is what you've heard about this thing. But now I say to you. And every, every time he does it, it's like he's, he's coming in and doing like an audit or um, what's it called when, the, when you do like an audit on a, on a building? to see if it's structurally sound. What's that called? When you like come in and you're an architect, an inspection, yeah. So he's like coming in and he's saying, let's, let's like do this inspection, like this audit of your heart. He basically says, you've, you've heard it said that you're not supposed to commit adultery. Now, some of you might like, you might take that li- literally and you're like, you wake up the next morning and you look next to you and you're like, oh, I'm good. I, I did it. Like, this is my wife. Like, amazing. Or I'm... I didn't sleep with somebody, that's awesome. And he's saying, no, no. He's like, let's do an inspection. Let's do this audit of your heart. Uh, In fact, if you look at at someone, like if you slow down as you're scrolling Instagram and and you just slow down for a little bit, you've committed adultery. He's saying like, let's do it. Let's do an honest audit of your heart. Uh, He gives another example with oaths. And I'm really bummed that, Mark, you get to preach on this one, that I don't get to preach on this one because I think it's such a a message to like, especially my millennial generation that's like, yeah, we should get together sometime. Or like, I'll be there, but we don't necessarily mean anything. And and he's saying, no, like, like basically Jesus gets down to the heart of it 
uh, and, and saying, we all live in this world where our instinct is to manage people's perception of us. And because that matters so much to us, we're gonna use our words in different ways and we're not gonna call it lying, but it is lying. Or anger, anger. He says, thou shall not murder. It's been said to you, thou shall not murder. But just a second, Soma Tacoma, any of you ever just like had that little like movie in your mind with that one person? Like, oh, I just wish that they would come back, that we'd have that same moment we had before. And now I know what I would say. And, and you like wish that in that moment you could make them feel small or you could just wish away their existence. Jesus is saying that that's murder. That's murder. So when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you have no place in the kingdom of God. I believe that he's actually saying, what's he been doing so far? He's been giving a personality description of his people. And he's saying, he's continuing and he's saying, my people have undergone such a complete renovation of their heart that they like David can wake up or before they go to sleep, they can do an audit of their hearts and they can say, search my heart, God. I wanna know, was that, I think that was a moment of anger today. Oh, I'm right there. I felt, I wish he was dead. I'm right there. Search me, oh God, let me know what you think about my heart. And this, this twisting of the law, it's the oldest like play in the playbook. It's, it's the evil one in the garden saying, Eve, do you think that God with his command meant this? He didn't. He meant this. And it's the oldest of the plays in our playbook where we take, I mean, back like when I was in my teens and I knew that there was this, this sexual purity standard, but my intent was like, well, how far can I go while still meeting the sexual purity standard? That is so far from search my heart, oh God. It's like very much trying to cage the law so that, so that I, can, I can keep it. So in some ways, this is like, I, again, I struggle with this sermon, but then I kind of like released it. I said, it needs to kind of be a cliffhanger because we need to spend, just like we have spent the last two months in this beatitudinal reshaping of our hearts. We need to be like left hanging and allow Jesus, because we get together once a week corporately for him to search our hearts, to just kind of gently guide, guide us through it. And actually believe that he wants our righteousness to exceed those of the Pharisees. He actually desires that. Now, if you weren't here for the Beatitudes, that can be heavy. But we spend a lot of time, almost at every one. Remember when we talked about pure of heart and like half, like you're like, oh dear. Like, I don't know if I'm pure of heart. But we said, pure of heart does not mean perfection. Pure of heart means to will one thing. And it means when I'm off the mark, I quickly go back and say, Jesus, I actually do want your heart. I do want your heart. So Jesus desires for us, desires for us to search our hearts because he then wants to be that great, I'm 
kind of riffing off the architect, because I have an architect here, that great interior designer that comes in and says, oh, this is out of place. And let's rearrange the furniture here. Let's move this wall. And so over the next few weeks and months as we, as we walk through this slowly, um, the law, Paul in Galatians says, the law was meant to be this tutor. It's supposed to teach us something about our hearts. Uh, I don't know if you ever had a tutor, if you ever had like, um, like when you were younger, maybe you learned a language or maybe uh, you, you learned an instrument, right? And if, for those of you who learned the instrument, where do you start? The tutor starts you with these, with scales and you like start working on the scales and you go up and down and you sometimes had to do it for a couple hours. And, and Andy, you and I as bass players, we didn't do that. Let's, who are we kidding? We never did the scales. Actually, there's another, I'll, I'll get back to that. But we just learned the scales. But what's the point of it? What's the point of it? It's not so that one day we can get up and there's this gathered multi multitude and we watch this 42-year-old man uh, play scales. No. We watch somebody who's, who's so mastered, so mastered, who's been tutored in the way that then they come together and they play this beautiful symphony. Where I was going with that is there's, I actually didn't learn by skills. There's this other piece. I was dropped in with a bunch of really good musicians. They were professional musicians and I was 17. And very, something very similar happens when we are in the church. We get together with people who have been whose hearts have been renovated, who are meant to be a distinct people of salt and light in the world, and now we together are, are tutored in the way of giving the picture of what God is like, of being that priesthood of believers, that priesthood, that kingdom of priests, that picture. So together we learn. So maybe... Maybe that metaphor is helpful to you over the next few weeks. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. We're going to go ahead and, and I'm just going to leave it there because we're, 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 we're short on time. And we're going to ask these two questions that we've been asking. How is the Spirit challenging you? And how is the Spirit comforting you? We always come down here. It's like a conversation. And uh, I, I want to um, remind those of you who need to be reminded, those of you who are here for the first time, uh, kind of the purpose of this. The purpose of this is um, for formation. I always we say this almost every week, that we're not here now for everyone to kind of preach their own sermon that they thought should have been preached. Um, we're, we're not here to argue, but we're actually here to, to do it what I just said to like David say like, well, how has God searched your heart? So we talk about formation. Then we also talk about that there's invitation here that we believe we create space for this because, because we have the authoritative word of God and because we all listen to it, there's probably things that need to be said right now that like I didn't say that might be the things that everyone needs to hear.